This is a Word Fitly Spoken Podcast. My words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scriptures, and about the mission on which the Scriptures send all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. Listen here for words on the way to that latter glory, words to refresh and guide, to lift up and build up, words beautiful and true, like apples of gold in a setting of silver. I'm Pastor Willie Grills here with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi to talk about the epistle of Jude. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, we usually, we've talked a little bit about uh, exegesis, and that's something that we really like to do, and we'll hopefully get into some historical topics, but uh, today, yeah, we wanted to dig into Jude and to uh, learn what we can from this wonderful and excellent, albeit a rather short book. Yeah, it's a very short book. Um, This is one of those things when people say, I could never sit down and read a whole book of the Bible. I promise you, you can. (laughs) And Jude is it. Yeah, all, what is it? 25 verses. 25 verses. verses, 25 verses. I think we can handle it. So The penultimate book of the Bible, yeah. So Jude. Well, what's the major theme then of Jude? What are we going to be talking about for most of the podcast? Well, Jude is primarily concerned... Uh, about congregations in his own time who were being infiltrated by false teachers. And these false teachers uh, were causing them to to wander and to go astray. And so Jude is speaking against them and warning them um, and pointing out that this is nothing, I don't know how to say unexpected, um, but that they should still watch out for them and to, to mark and avoid. Yeah, you know it's coming, it's going to happen, be ready, mark and avoid these people. It's something that the Christians today can certainly relate to. Uh, They are bombarded constantly by false teaching, by false teachers, false prophets in their midst, and Christians need to be aware of that, pastors especially. Yeah, and sometimes those false teachers can seem kind of attractive. And I think that's part of what Jude is dealing with, is these these kinds of teachers who were saying things that sounded really good to the, is, these congregations, uh, but ultimately needed to be avoided because they were destructive and would bring them um, finally to death, spiritual death. Right. So first things first, the author is Jude. Jude is quite simply the brother of James the Just. James, we know, is the author of the epistle of St. James. Yep, and we do find references uh, to him in, what is it, Matthew, what, is, what was it, Matthew 12 or 13? Matthew 13, 55-ish. Yep. I think maybe Mark 6. And Mark 6. And so, yeah, he's a he's actually a pretty minor figure in the New Testament. I mean, does he show up anywhere else, Willie? Uh, not that not that I'm aware. Uh, I mean, there are, there are other Judes, uh, but this Jude is not one of the 12, uh, you know, also called, what, Thaddeus? In other, in other times? I think so, um, yes. He's, and he's certainly not Judas. No, not that Judas. <laughs> and it, that actually brings up a really interesting point. Um, we have such a an obscure figure in the New Testament writing this epistle. Who would want to impersonate this guy? Right, right. Yeah, if you're going to try to write a false book and really influence people, I mean, you might be, you might impersonate James even. James is a hugely influential figure in uh, the Jerusalem church especially, which is really the heart of the church at this time. You could impersonate St. Paul or St. Peter or even pretend to write as Jesus himself, and yet you have this C-list disciple here. Um, 
<laughs> With all due respect, I mean, he's not a, you know, yeah. I'm just saying, you know, his like icon, him. his icon isn't hanging up as, you know, commonly as some other ones. <laughs> and, and so you've got this guy and yeah, this relatively obscure disciple, you know, it doesn't really lend itself well to a forgery um, is basically what we're saying that if, if this were a fake, it's more than likely going to be a fake in the name of someone much more prominent within the church. Yeah. And so Christians shouldn't be worried about this book or, you know, about who Jude is or because he's not an A-list apostle, as as you might say. <laughs> super apostle, right? A super apostle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Greater than Paul. Um, but rather because of that, we have before us um, a genuine letter written by a genuine apostle speaking to actual congregations. And so we shouldn't be concerned about about questions like that. Right. So dating, um, 60 to 80 AD seems reasonable. Yeah, it, it seems pretty reasonable, I think, because, well, you have to ask yourself its relationship to the book of Second Peter. Do you want to talk about that at all, Willie? Yeah, it's worth it's worth bringing it's worth bringing up because it's going to be the first question that people are going to get if they go study this a little bit further. The similarities between Jude and Second Peter. Yeah, and uh, they do sound very similar, especially Second Peter chapter two. I'm of the opinion that since Peter wrote Second Peter and Peter dies in the mid '60s uh, by martyrdom, I'm willing to say that Jude probably wrote a little bit after Peter. And the reason I would say that is because you have like in verse 18, um, he refers to second Peter and as if it was something that had been written in the past. Right. And, and see today, you know, we kind of think, Oh, well see, clearly there's some plagiarism or something. Um, these people are not cons- questions of academic propriety and copyright are not issues. This is simply Jude handing on or handing down the teaching that was handed down to him. This should not give us any pause or cause any alarm. And and the other thing to remember there, too, is um, Jude himself doesn't give us a whole lot of clues about when he wrote. So this is really the only clue that we have. So I'm willing to to accept uh, somewhere between 60 and 80 A.D. as well. All right. So this is a little bit different from some of the other epistles. Uh, We do have epistles like it in the New Testament. Um, It's more of an encyclical. It's not written to any one one church. Uh, So possibly it's a letter that's meant to be passed around a a certain region, um, a certain area. So that makes it a little bit unique, not entirely unique. Um, Certainly there are, again, others like it, Um, which can also make pinpointing the audience a little bit more difficult, although we do have some pretty strong internal evidence uh, for a certain audience. So, Zellin, won't you uh, talk about that for a little bit? <laughs> You're just throwing it all at me. Thanks, <laughs> guy. I'm lob it right at you. Thanks, friend. Um, <laughs> because because we're dealing with, like like you said, um, probably more of an area that he's writing to, I'm I'm not willing to say that this is a truly Catholic epistle, like he's writing to the church everywhere, but rather that maybe he's focused on a certain region. And he's dealing with uh, these false teachers that we're going to talk about in a minute. I'm going to throw that one at you, Willie, just because, you know, I'm being like that, um, who are coming into these congregations and influencing them. And it's probably the kinds of congregations that are a little bit more Greek in character. And uh, the reason for that is because the particular heresy that they're dealing with um, is is 
a little bit more Greek in character. And so it's a little bit more um, going to be more influential in those kinds of uh, places. So you might have Greece, for example, uh, somewhere uh, in that area. It could even be Asia Minor, uh, which would be like all the congregations mentioned in Revelation. We don't know exactly where he's writing to, but he's writing to Hellenistic, probably Jews, uh, people who have come to believe in Christ, but who are very strongly influenced by this Greek uh, thought and Greek way of living. Right, and just a quick reminder, uh, folks, that if we say Hellenistic, uh, we we merely mean Greek or Greek influenced. Um, so we're going to kind of use those words interchangeably uh, here a little bit um, in this broadcast, but Greek Hellenistic. So just a little bit of a uh, pregame there. <laughs> Got to keep your terms so, yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. So so yeah. So some scholars are going to suggest that the addressees are Christians from a Hellenistic. Jewish background. Um, So that's Greek-influenced Jews. And that's going to look a lot different from, say, the Jews um, in the church at Galatia, right, who are susceptible to really strong Jewish influences um, and teachers like the Judaizers. Um, The Hellenistic Jews are going to be more likely to be influenced by Greek thought. So that's, uh, that's more of a pagan understanding of the world. And so that's why a lot of scholars are going to say that the heresy or the error, the apostasy uh, being dealt with here is proto-Gnosticism. Proto-Gnosticism. So not full-blown Gnosticism, which we're getting ready to define, because we hear that word an awful lot, and we really have been hearing it since, oh, probably the mid-late 90s, with Elaine Pagels and those books and everything. Sure. Um yeah, so sort of this proto-version of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism, it's very important that we at least define it um, as best we can in a few minutes because it's a very complicated subject and there is great variety within the Gnostic thought. But, um, you know, just to kind of really boil Gnosticism down to its essence, because it is a word that, again, is just used uh, very, very commonly. Um, so it's a dualistic religion. So dualism. What do, you, what do you mean by dualistic? Yeah. So, <laughs> so dualism. Uh, consult your local library. No. Um, so dualism is basically uh, the division of something into two opposed or contrasted aspects. Uh, the state of being uh, divided. So two um, two parts. And so, what does that mean um, in the Gnostic sense or in the theological sense? Um, Let's see. What's Z? What's the most concise way to go about this, so I don't end up taking up all hour and fifteen minutes? Yes, we don't make this an episode about Gnosticism. Um, Well, if if you really want to boil it down, full blown Gnosticism, and this again, we're dealing with proto Gnosticism, the early Gnosticism, so it's not full blown. But full blown would say that you have the material world and the spiritual world, and they're at and they're at opposition with each other. It's a very Greek kind of thought coming out of things like. Uh, Plato with his uh, ideals and that sort of thing, that the material world for full-blown Gnosticism is something evil. Um, Right. But the reason why we're emphasizing this so much is, is because we have to be careful with our definitions. Because if we call everything Gnostic, then nothing ends up being Gnostic. And so, you know, and and particularly when you're dealing with something like dualism, which has been very important. Um, important in the history of the church, where Christianity has essentially rejected all forms of dualism, 
or at least a dual origin of the world or dual natures like that, you know, in that sense. Um, unless you, you talk about some of the later Neoplatonic influences, but you see a rejection of dualism, you know, all the way up really into modern theology. I mean, even from Magnus all the way through Aquinas and beyond. So, yeah, yeah and, and you're exactly right. If everything's Gnosticism, uh, uh, nothing is. And really this sort of word Gnostic, similar to Platonic, these kind of terms have been used and abused so much that now they have no context and no meaning. It's just basically like, if if I see something theologically that's a little bit off, it's Gnosticism, and and we want to avoid that sort of thing. Uh, we want to um, we want to be very precise with our terms so that we know um, we know what we're talking about. Now, to be sure, there are broader applications of the Epistle of Jude beyond proto Gnosticism. We're not we're not saying that it's it's you might not be dealing with pure Gnosticism in your life. And in your church, but you're going to be dealing with other uh, heresies at some point in your Christian walk. And so there's certainly a broader application outside of Gnosticism, but nevertheless, we need to understand the context in which the Bible was written because context is important for interpretation. Yeah, and I would I would kind of just throw in there that uh, I call it the, the syndrome syndrome. I remember from the, the movie The Incredibles, <laughs> if everyone's a super, nobody will be. There we go, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's and that's kind of the point here is that you can't just call everything you don't like Gnosticism. Right. Um, we have to be careful with our terms, and that's kind of what you were saying. So. Right. And there we are. All right. So Hellenistic Jews, proto Gnostic. Either way, you come down. They're dealing with the problem of false teachers. Now, before we go to break, before we really dig into this, um, we need to know that really the central theme revolves around contending earnestly for the faith. And that's really at the heart of word fitly spoken anyway. Ultimately, everything that we're doing exegetically is to contend for that faith uh, once delivered to all the saints. And how do we do that? How is one equipped to contend for the faith by studying the scriptures and studying it in depth? And to study the scripture often entails using other other resources. You have to look at history books. You know, Perhaps you are listening to good podcasts. I'm not saying it's this one, but there are good podcasts out there. Um, you, know, you, you have to use these other tools at your disposal because they are essential aids in interpretation. And listen to your pastor, uh, faithful shepherds who are called to uphold the truth and integrity of this word of God. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to, how do you want to say it? You don't want to just sit down and pretend like, um, the only thing worthwhile is just the Bible and my own thoughts, um, because we we do learn from those around us, and we learn from them and from their own experiences and from their own expertise, knowing that they're not infallible like the Bible is. But yeah, people can teach us something about what all of these things mean. Absolutely. Right. Now, that's not to say anything authority-wise is above the Scriptures, that's not to say any book is above the scriptures or anything, any material, any resource. Mm-hmm. The Bible is the source of all good things and the fountain source of all wisdom. And so that's what we're here. That's what we're doing. And that's why we have so many exegetical broadcasts or will have so many exegetical broadcasts. Uh, learning the discipline, learning about the word, digging deeper and deeper into the word uh, week after week as the Lord sees fit. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back and dig into the epistle of Jude.
If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org You are listening to a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zoe and Heidi talking about the book of Jude. Zoe, let's dig right in. Why don't you go ahead and start reading verse 1. All right, Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Do you want to as well? Yeah, go on. Go on. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Yeah. So kept in Jesus Christ or preserved in Jesus Christ, those are some significant words for the believer. Yeah, significant because uh, our perseverance isn't our own doing. Um, we aren't uh, we aren't kept in Jesus because we you know really really strive to keep in Jesus. But um, I mean, would you, I mean, would you say that God Himself keeps us uh, faithful? Oh, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, it's all glory to God. Uh, the Christian struggles, and the Christian does strive to do right. Uh, but the Christian fails, and the Christian can't really fulfill that. But God certainly sustains our faith and keeps us in the faith. That's one of the gospel promises, that your salvation is complete, and that, that, that the good work that God has begun in you, God will finish. What about that language of called? Uh, what does Jude mean by that, Willie? Yeah, called. It's quite simply uh, the ecclesia, right? The called out ones. You know, when we talk about election like we did um, in a previous episode, what does that mean but the called out ones? Those who are called by the gospel and those who are called come to faith. They hear the word and they come to faith. They are quite literally called by the gospel and called out from the world. And being called, uh, they've been separated to God, and, and, and as Jude says, they're preserved by God as well. Right. So, so it's called, and then beloved. Um, other manuscripts would say sanctified or set apart. So they're called, um, they're given the special status here, and then they are preserved. Anything else you want to mention about uh, these first couple of verses then, Willie? Well, it's, it's interesting. So he, he gives this very uh, loving and friendly greeting as is custom, and then mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And then it's going to be very similar uh, to other epistles uh, where there's a sense of urgency uh, to the message. So then Jude is going to go, go right into the warning. So you have these niceties, sincere niceties, not mere formalities. And then the urgency of the situation um, requires Jude to immediately shift gears. Yeah, uh, it's it's a way of saying, like, showing his concern for these people in a genuine way, uh, but then that concern translates into a warning, because that's also concern. It's not love to just ignore these things, uh, but to actually address them and to um, tell them to watch out. Correct. So then, uh, verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, that's a very, very popular Bible verse, is it not? Contend earnestly. Well, I hope it is. Contend earnestly for the faith, (laughs) 
uh, which is once for all delivered to the saints. Um, any any insights there? Well, I mean, what do we mean by faith? I suppose this is the question of, is this like my faith, like, you know, th- that I believe in, in Christ? Uh, well, that doesn't really seem to fit here. Right. This is the faith, this deposit of divine revelation that has been given to you, namely the teaching and wisdom of Jesus Christ, particularly concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And because you have this deposit, this uh, uh, this body of, of doctrine, I mean, even, um, that's why Jude is also trying to emphasize that, yeah, these teachers who are coming in that he's going to talk about in a minute— they're, they don't have this deposit. They don't, they're not contending for the faith. And so we, uh, he calls them to actually return to that faith, which was once delivered to all the saints, which they know from the apostles. And it's very clear here, and it's very interesting. Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. When we're talking about faith and salvation, we are talking about one unique Savior and one unique faith. There is one common salvation. That's why it's so important that they earnestly contend, because there are no other options. God's just not going to say, well, you did your best in Zen Buddhism, so come on in. The exclusivity, <laughs> the exclusivity of Christ is a central tenet of the Christian faith. Amen. And, it's, and it might be worth noting here something that we didn't mention in the introduction about these proto-Gnostic uh, heretics. Um, one of the other major tenets of Gnosticism is this idea of special knowledge. Um, that the, right, right. That you esoteric could, hidden, yeah, esoteric hidden knowledge. Right. Because I know something more than you, therefore I'm probably. I don't know if you want to say if I'm better than you or if I have a deeper knowledge than you. Um, and so Jude is emphasizing that no, it's not about having this secret knowledge or this hidden knowledge, but this common salvation which we have delivered to everybody. It's not hidden, like Jesus said. You know, as the scriptures say, we have withheld nothing from you. Uh, The Christian faith is not the lodge. The Christian faith is not a secret society. We don't hide our teachings from the world. Um, To be sure, uh, there are certain things that are reserved only for the church, like communion, but we don't hide our doctrine. We don't hide our teaching about it. Uh, We don't close the Bible up and say, nope, you haven't reached the proper level uh, so we can't reveal this to you. You haven't you haven't passed a certain level, so you know no Jesus for you. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not going to teach you anything, and that and that's that's very important because that's something that you're going to hear a lot. You know, oh, join my club, join this group, and we're going to reveal to you things that they don't want you to know, that only I'm privy to know, that only certain people are privileged to know. It's kind of an early version or a spiritual version of a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> or you know, or or the or the, or the secret or whatever the the thing was a few years ago, or some or some conspiracy theory or yeah, and I, it's anything that promises you that you'll know more than other people. Yeah, that that's not at all what the gospel is about, right? And it's generally and and what we're going to see a little bit later is it's generally about the ego of the teacher, uh, the false teacher. I have been given a revelation that. Paul has not. Jesus has favored me more, and so now I have a special word that only my chosen people can know, and usually for a price. Always for a price. Always. Yeah, there's exactly. always a, there's always a catch, um, and, it, and it's usually <laughs> silver. 
<laughs> so yeah, so there we go. So yeah, it is we are not a secret society, folks. This is the Church of Christ. It is exclusive. It is an exclusive society with privileges only for the Christian by the grace of God. But the gospel is for everybody, and the truth of the word of God is for everybody. We're not hiding anything from you. This isn't a bait and switch. What we teach you is true. What we teach you on the outside is the same thing that we'll teach you on the inside. You're not going to be the grand moose. There's no more this. It's not a secret society. It's not an exclusive club in that sense. The exclusivity belongs solely to Jesus Christ and his uniqueness as the Savior of the world. His uniqueness is God incarnate. Amen. All right. Well, let's move on because I'm gassing off way too much here. Let's go. <laughs> it's, it's all good, though. It's all good. Uh, verse four. Uh, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So certain men have crept in awares unnoticed, have, or excuse me, have crept in unnoticed. I keep wanting to go back to that King James, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked <laughs> out for this condemnation. So first thing first, these are vessels fitted for destruction. Um, they're not hiding from anyone. They're, they're not hiding from God, but they've crept in unaware or unnoticed. Mm-hmm. And so what, what does that look like? Is it is it unnoticed by the Christians, because by the laymen, because they're letting him in? Is it unnoticed by the teachers because they're not there? I think it's probably a little of both, actually. Um, yeah. Like you said, yeah. it's not hidden to God, but it's been hidden from the congregations that Jude is addressing. And so these teachers have come in probably with this uh, proto-Gnostic teaching, this super knowledge uh, that sounds, you know, so attractive because, ooh, you know, I can learn something, you know, more than other people. And because of that, they haven't been paying attention. Yeah, you know, sin uh, and, and error is often equated with leaven mm-hmm. uh, when the Bible uses leaven as a um, as a negative example. And how does leaven start? Just a little pinch is all it takes, and then it grows and grows and grows and spreads. And so one little error, one little falsity creeps into the church, and then error takes root and error grows. Mm -hmm. That's often how things creep in unnoticed. You know, one guy comes in with a tract uh, from some Wiccan church down the street. The next thing you know— They've got full-on Baphomet statues in the narthex or something. You know, let's use you know it's, I, I it's like a slippery slope here. <laughs> Crazy times, no one... I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> um, but maybe something a little bit closer to home. You, when you're dealing with teachers who come in and say things that are just a little bit off, you know, they're just a you right, know, has right. God really said kind of a thing? And before you know it, the whole congregation has been deeply influenced by this way of thinking. And so, yeah, I mean, definitions matter, doctrines matter, uh, what we say about the Bible matters. It's not just a, a free-for-all. And it's not for the sake of being right. Being right for its own sake is vanity. Yes. Being right for your own sake is certainly vanity. We don't want to be right just to be right and be smarter than the world. We want to be right because it's fidelity to God and souls are at stake. Um, it really does matter. False doctrine is just as deadly as murder. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because it kills the soul. It's a capital crime, and we forget that. 
um, because we've become a little bit relativistic and, and it's really important. You cannot understand Jude when you have the modern mind, the modern religious mind, which says that confession doesn't matter, uh, which says that everybody basically believes the same thing. And we're all on the same journey because quite, no, you're not, you're not in the same journey. There are two roads, one to hell, one to salvation, and that's about it. And maybe some tributaries on the way to hell, but uh, there really aren't <laughs> too many things. And I don't mean to sound, you know, like fundamentalist fire and brimstone here, but that's what that's what we are dealing with here. And Jude can seem so foreign to us in an age of so many denominations and in an age where everybody does what's right in their own eyes and an age where religion is seen as a purely private matter and private interpretation is seen as a right. We only have a right to private interpretation insofar as the civil government is concerned. And even then that could, you know, they can come in and decide that you don't have that anymore. Apologies to the Lou Rockwell readers out there, but you know, the guy with the guy with the sword has some influence is all I'm saying. And, and, and so, so the thing is, is that God is not a pluralist and God is not an ecumenist and God really doesn't have that big of a tent. And it's not again. It's it's simply because error leads to damnation, or very very much can lead to damnation if it's allowed to fester. Yeah, because you're always you're always mixing in something not God into the things of God, and that's why I mean you you kind of alluded to this, but like um, when you get the the capital punishments um, in the Torah in the first five books of the Bible, one of the sins that was actually worthy of capital punishment was uh, leading uh, Israelites astray because of, of false doctrine. And that seems so foreign to us that, you know, why would they put these people to death who had taught them about another God? But that's because, uh, well, frankly, it is death. You are leading people into hell. And so it is a much more serious matter uh, than we we sometimes make it out to be right, and and these condemnations are primarily aimed at those in the teaching office or those who would claim to be teachers. I don't want to cause those of you out there listening, you know, who who are really struggling for the truth and who are really diligently trying to do this. I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation or worry because your salvation is is of Jesus Christ and accomplished in Jesus Christ. Um, that's I'm not trying to to make you doubt. It's an admonition to the teachers, and it's an admonition and a reminder of the seriousness with which God himself takes his own word and his own teaching. And and with that, just, yeah, maybe just to clarify, too, like the, the punishments in uh, the, the, the law of Israel was always against, like you said, like you say, the teachers. It's not just a matter of, you know, I have to be, I don't know how you want to put yeah, it. Little Timmy I, didn't remember the second commandment, and we stoned him with stones. That's, that, yeah, that, that's, that's not, not what we're saying. <laughs> it's, it's when you actually deliberately say, let us go after other gods. Right, right. And that, that's the point. Right. That kind of sets the stage here, then, uh, for these false men who have crept in unaware. You know, kind of getting to the mind of Jude a little bit. But this is very much how these men would have thought. And, and you see it in their own words, the severity of their words uh, when they talk about such false teachers. I mean, Paul does not pull punches. And I know we're talking about Jude today, but you know, you look at examples of men who are confronting false teachers and Paul does not, um, does not get out the ukulele or the, or the drum and pass the peace pipe. He, <laughs> he, he is very clear and very, st- very stern <clears throat> in his warnings. 
Well, so, okay, so Willie, what does Jude mean by designated for this condemnation? What does that mean? <laughs> well, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, and we're going to talk about this when we get into more uh, <clears throat> systematic episodes, as you hear me kick the can down the road. Um, <laughs> those who uh, were marked out for this condemnation, uh, Paul talks about vessels uh, fitted for uh, destruction. The false teachers uh, in the Bible are often uh, raised up to prove a point that uh, God will not be mocked. Uh, you see it with Pharaoh and the hardening of his heart. Um, and two things are at play here, the sinfulness of men, the culpability uh, of men for their own actions and their own wickedness, and uh, God in his providence uh, using these things to accomplish his purposes and to display his glory. No- nothing pops up by accident uh, or anything like that. This is God, God knows what he's doing. These, and it's the plain words of Scripture. Long ago, we're marked out for this condemnation. I think it's a little bit too easy to just say that it's uh, foreknowledge. And if you're just going with this text, you know, you could, you could, you could probably say, "Well, yeah, God saw from all time what they were going to do, and and then so they were marked out for this condemnation." But when you take uh, other examples, and you take uh, specifically Paul and Romans talking about Pharaoh and talking about vessels fitted for dishonored use and that sort of thing, you get this broader picture. There's a there's a much more uh, deeper aspect to it than than we're often comfortable with admitting. Uh, it goes back to Joseph and his brothers. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. So so God, you know, is not the author of sin. Men are totally responsible for their sin, but here God brings about what he wants, uh, even through wicked men. Another example of that, uh, I think worth noting, comes from Second Kings, uh, when God says through the prophet Isaiah to Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria, that uh, long ago I determined that you were going to be successful in your military campaigns. Long ago I determined that you would right. go out and do this. And now because you are exalting yourself against me, I will make you a fail (laughs) and turn back. Right. Um, It's this sort of mystery of providence and mystery of how that works. And it's the hidden counsel of God. It's something that we're not fit or that we're not uh, given. Again, we go back to this question of hidden knowledge. It's something that's not, uh, not given to us to know. But all of these things ultimately work out. For good, for, in his Accord, yes, and yes, that's and that's the thing. According too. to the purposes of God, that God is not the watchmaker to use that cliche who winds up the watch and, and goes away. God is active in His creation. He doesn't just set it up, start the globe spinning, and then and then goes off. He's not. He's he's not. We're not deists. God is is active in His creation, and it often makes people a little bit uncomfortable. They go, oh. Ooh, I don't like that. I like God to be there in the good times, especially. I like him to make me feel good in the bad times. I don't really like to think about the implications of a of a, of a God who is truly, truly sovereign and working through all truly in Yeah, but yeah. I mean, so many things hinge <laughs> upon God and his ordination and his providence. I mean, the incarnation, God enters into time according to his own will and accomplishes the salvation of the world. Um, his providence is ultimately his care for for creation in his own way and according to his own will. And that's that's often a difficulty for the Christian to be content with the will of God and to be content with what is happening at the time when we generally don't know uh, how God's going to work it out. 
or how God has ordained it to work out. If I can really use some some strong language there. Yeah. But but what's the, what's the promise there? Well, okay, so who long ago were marked out for condemnation? Well, let's go back to uh, you know the the introductory verses here to those who are called beloved by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. It, it works both ways. I mean, it works. You know, God in the same way has looked upon His people and loved them in a special way from before the foundation of the world, and, and so His providence is not this. This fatalistic, cold, uh, as people want to say, uh, he's a god of rules or a god of laws. Well, he is a god of laws and rules. That's true. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's not a loving god and a gracious god uh, who brings rain and raises up the crops. He's the god who raises up dynasties, and he's the god who causes dynasties to fall. But above all that, he is our loving god. He is our creator who loves his creation and particularly loves his church. And he loved his creation so much that he comes sacrificially, he condescends to his creation, becomes like a man, or becomes man, truly uh, is God incarnate, and suffers, lives sinlessly, suffers and dies in a sinful world for the sake of man. And he redeems man. And, and, and we are the redeemed. Uh, the, the Christian church is the church of the redeemed, and it's all part of his providential care, and it's all part of his raising up of everything according to his purpose. To not believe in a God who is sovereign, to not believe in a God who is in control, to just put it in simple terms, is really to have no assurance of the gospel. Because if God is just letting things go, if it's a deist God, well, then what does what does the incarnation matter? What does salvation matter? How can we really trust that? If he's really in control, how do I know what's really going to happen? How can I trust his promises if everything's up to chance or will or something like that? No, there is something much more mysterious going on. Affirming two things. Men are responsible for their own wickedness, but God is also still very much uh, a true and living God in the purest sense of the word. All right, well said. Um, but if if we leave God up to kind of just going along willy nilly, like let's see what happens, as if God doesn't know what the future holds, uh, which we would say, you know, if if He's not sovereign, if He isn't in control, He'd have no idea what's going on either. Well, then we have no promise even of say the second coming. Right. It it might happen unless some guy maybe w- yeah wakes up tomorrow and butterfly affects it uh, into not happening. <laughs> I mean that's gotta the get, thing. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get everything into the right alignment, and then Jesus yeah. will come. No, Frank, that's, that's not yeah, it at Frank all. got up and put on the wrong pair of socks, and now the world is doomed. <laughs> I mean that is not how God operates. Um, or, or you know, or you save save somebody, and now the apocalypse doesn't happen, you know, or something like that. Right. It's just not how God works. So, right, and 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 that's the thing is, and at the same time, it is a mystery, and so we don't, you know, we live trusting in the promises of God, but we also live knowing that we are responsible for what we do, that that is true, um, mm-hmm. that it's not just some sort of divine puppet show going on. That in this mystery, this great mystery where man is responsible for what he does, uh, in particular the wicked that he does. Um, But yet at the same time you have a God who is in control, it leads to tension, and that tension is okay, because Scripture affirms both of these things. You mean it for evil, God means it for good. Okay, that's all right. It's one of the great 
mysteries of the Bible, and we cannot reconcile those things in our minds, and in particular in the way in which it's going to work out. We can say we can mentally assent to the principle, but as far as how this all plays out, the machinations of it, how it works, we're just not privy to know. And God has not chosen to reveal it to us. And we'd probably all be insane if he did give us that knowledge because we just couldn't comprehend it. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, yeah. We, it, w- it would literally mean being God because the only way you can know that is to know all things. And the only one who knows all things is God himself. So we, we can say, praise God and, you know, who is like him and then recognize that we are safe in his hands and his hands that are fully in control of all things. All right, that said, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. And we're back on our walk through the book of Jude here, Willie and Zelman, as always. So, moving on, we've got... Certain men creeping in unnoticed, long ago marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into license and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this lewdness, or as the ESV puts it again, Zelwyn? Uh, sensuality. This sensuality is really going to be fleshed out more uh, explicitly by Jude um, as the verses continue. So let's just dig right in. Zelwyn, why don't you go ahead and read verses uh, 5 and 6 for us? All right, uh, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What we're going to have with Jude here are a lot of allusions. Uh, to other things. And that's going to really take a, mm-hmm. a, a lot of time here. Uh, it's kind of like uh, today, one of the things that has started to pass for jokes is just references to things. You know, you watch certain shows and they don't really say jokes. They just have references. Well, Jude really likes to use these illusions. And in Jude's case, it's a very positive example because it demonstrates a few things, namely that Jude is keenly aware of salvation history. He's keenly aware of the scriptures And also, um, we're going to see he's probably very much aware of oral tradition that is passed down as well. So, the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Uh, Zelma, you want to elaborate on on the Exodus story a little bit for us? Well, yeah, we have a a clear reference here uh, to Exodus and also to the wandering in the wilderness because what you have is uh, God delivering Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, as the phrase goes. And as they're wandering around in the wilderness, they they begin to rebel against the Lord. And and this rebellion, what is it, 10 times, I think, is is the, the reference that's given. Right. Um, and eventually, 
you have them coming right up to the edge of the promised land. And God tells them, you know, go in, you're going to conquer it, you're going to win, go do it. But the spies come back and say, no, they're too big for us, their cities are too strong, and so we're not going to do it. And so God condemns them uh, to wander in the wilderness. It's not that they got lost or anything. This was actually God's judgment until that wicked generation uh, perished. And this is a this is something that a lot of this is a story. This is a tr- excuse me a true account of event of historic events that Christians are aware of. It's one of the biggies. And before we get into these other ones, we want to pause and, and, and really echo Jude here. Jude says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this. So this is something that they knew. The recipients of this letter once knew this, the mysteries of the faith, because the totality of the faith had already been delivered to them, as we see in verse 3. And then he's going to go uh, to remind them of this. That's, that's why it's important to know the scriptures and to have it there because God will do that. You will imbibe the scripture, you will learn something, and then sometimes you're going to forget and you're going to stumble. And the word of God's going to be there to remind you, to call you back to that word and to call you back these reminders of what God has done. And sometimes these admonitions. Well, and in this case, actually, what's interesting is that these are negative admonitions directed against the false teachers. Yeah, I'm saying that, that the significance is, is that this isn't new revelation to these people. He's using these allusions to things that they had already learned. I mean, he's these things yes. that you once knew. You know, he's he's goading the believers a little bit, too. Sure. Okay, sure. I, I'll agree with that. Uh, but what I was actually going to get at here is that he actually says Jesus is the one who did this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> isn't Isn't that interesting? Uh, we have a clear reference to the Son of God, to Jesus, before he became man, a fully man, being the one who's actually leading Israel through the wilderness, and Jesus actually being the one uh, carrying out the judgment. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, this theophany is Jesus here. This is Jesus active in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, we forget that 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 uh, who is through who is. Um, is the word created? Well, what does John tell us? Through the word of God, you know, through essentially through Jesus. And so you have these manifestations all throughout the scripture. And here you have another explicit one, uh, Jude very clearly uh, identifying which person of the Trinity it is at work in, in the Exodus. Yeah. And we, and the reason I bring that up too, and pointing out that it's Jesus who's actually carrying out the judgment, uh, we don't want to get the, uh, a mistaken notion of what Jesus has come to do as if he's not the judge right. or he, something like that. Yeah, and we even sing that in the liturgy. We believe that you will come to be our judge. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, it is something that we forget. I mean, we confess it in the creed even. Yeah, this idea, uh, we've got this really sort of waifish kind of Jesus that's depicted often in popular culture. We don't get the war Jesus with the sword and revelation coming coming back in judgment too, too often depicted on Hallmark Channel originals. And that's- <laughs> yeah, the white writer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so with this, then, um, Jesus is the one who's actually uh, doing all of these things. And that's something that would also uh, be a reminder to the believers as well. But why does why does uh, Jude bring this up as an example, though? Yeah. What's his point? All of his examples, and they're going to be sort of building and building and building in severity here. It's... Um- 
it's a comment on false teachers and how they work, how they're turning people away from the faith or how they're usurping power that was not given to them by God or, or a better said, usurping authority that was not given them by God. These are all going to be examples that are going to ultimately expose the wickedness of the false teachers uh, that Jude is uh, talking about. And so I think it's maybe worth pointing out, too, that when Jesus returns to to judge the world, he's also going to judge these false teachers for their false teaching. Better for you to have a millstone around your neck than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Right. Right. Uh, They will be held culpable. And again, we go back to our early discussion of a capital crime. Uh, They're going to be judged for this false teaching the same as if they'd murdered someone. They're going to be judged for this false teaching the same as if they've committed adultery or as if they've stolen or or bore false witness or coveted or, or whatever. Uh, this false teaching is really a breaking of at least the first two commandments. <laughs> you know, the at least, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the very least, not knowing any more details yet, although we will, you know, at least those first two commandments, that God does not take this lightly. And really, it's what you're going to see here in Jude is a series of judgments upon people. And it's a comment upon how seriously, again, God takes his word. And it's for the sake of of his people, ultimately. Yes, yeah. We, you don't want to, you don't want to take away this notion that God is just somehow I don't know being mean or something <laughs> right, like that. Right. As if, you know, as if he's just being a big meanie. When God judges false teachers, he does so for the sake of his people, because all of the enemies of his church will have to answer for everything that they do to his church. Right, and we can. And we can take comfort in that, knowing that God has not forgotten um, all of the injuries done to his people. Absolutely. And that relationship ought to be, um, you know, sort of shadowed uh, by the pastors. The pastors uh, of God's flocks should be diligently um, protecting their sheep from, from false teachers. That's part of the pastoral call. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely what we're called to do. If we're not called, if we don't do it, uh, it's like running away when the wolf comes to eat the sheep. And again, you know, we, we hammered on this point a little bit at the beginning, but we want to be very clear. Being right or being correct in doctrine for the sake of being correct is of no good. There's no love of neighbor there. Right doctrine from the pastor's perspective is loving of one's neighbor. It is the loving of the neighbor. And it is the way in which we help to guard the sheep that God has given us to oversee. It's not to say we're right, that guy's wrong. It's not to be haughty. It's simply, uh, you know, the truth of the scripture is the weapon that we're given to protect the flock that God has entrusted to us. Yes, absolutely. And with that mighty weapon of the word, uh, we will be able to withstand um, all all attacks because we have the Lord our God behind Absolutely. us. So we don't want to find ourselves like the people who did not believe in Egypt. Uh, we want to find ourselves, you know, faithful uh, unto the last day. And so the way in which we remain faithful is to attend uh, to the means of grace, to the preaching of the word of God, to the sacraments, um, to those things that God has given us, um, to those things that forgive sins, to those things that strengthen faith, to those things that inform the faith. Absolutely. 
But uh, maybe to move move ahead a little bit here, Willie, uh, we talk about in verse six of uh, the angels who do not to stay, stay within their own position of authority. What is Jude talking about in verse six? Uh, yeah, so their their uh, position of authority, their own proper domain, but they left their own abode. He has reserved an everlasting change under under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So, what's the proper abode or the proper domain for angels? Originally, angels are created to be near to God. Uh, they are servants of God. So in short, what is their abode? I mean, their natural abode is heaven, or at least, you know, near the God at the feet of God, although they do serve elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the point is, uh, servants of God. But then they leave their proper place. And so what does that mean? Well, now they're bound, okay? So they're reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. This is simply demons. This is we talk about angels and we talk about demons. And and a demon is an angel who rebelled against God, who commits idolatry, and now they are cursed. They're cursed and they're bound in chains awaiting for the judgment. So you have the reference in Revelation to the, the war between Michael and the dragon. What is that? Revelation twelve, I think. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. You have Michael and his angels, as the as the text reads, and also the, the dragon and his angels. And so uh, these angels, having left their position of authority, their their rightful place, followed after Satan's Satan, example, right? And and follow Satan's example, and therefore are are now bound um, in the same judgment. Yeah. Well, and I, and, I, and I suppose it's more than just following his example. They actually. Uh, are part uh, they're actively part of this rebellion against God. And the really the sad story here is that these angels are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The angel, unlike man, does not have the promise of salvation given to him. The the gospel is not for angels. No. I mean and, and strictly speaking too like in Revelation again, uh the the lake of fire, uh hell was prepared, was prepared for the prepared devil, for the devil and, his and his angels. angels. Yeah. So hell was never, um, I guess you could say, not intended for man, but was actually prepared for them. Uh, so they have no chance of repenting. There is right. no hope for them. Right, and it's a you know it's a it's a tr- it's a terrible thing to think about to just be you know stuck in this um, in this spiritual darkness that they're in, and they're just awaiting the judgment. This is one of those instances where Ju- um, you know you have Jude and Second Peter kind of over overlapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Second Peter has him awaiting the judgment when the bonds uh, with God will be demolished forever, mm-hmm. and and so now, okay, well, is Jude just talking about angels? Then what is, does this have anything to do with these false teachers? It actually, yes, it does. So their proper domain, their proper abode, their proper position uh, is really again a reference. It's now he's um, he's calling out the false teachers because that's one of the things that they do. They have usurped a role that was not theirs. They have left their proper place and have come into an abode that is not theirs. And I don't think that, and that's not allegorizing too much. I mean, I think that's clear. That's the natural uh, sort of referent here. Yeah. And I, I, you're absolutely right in that if they had uh, been in their proper position, they would have been teaching the word. Well, or, no, no, or they, they would not have been teaching the word. If they'd been in their proper position, they would have been receiving the word as laymen. And if they were to teach the word, God would have called them, or the church would have called them uh, in the sense of an external call. But these men have none of this. Okay. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm saying is that these men, what in general, what is the proper domain or the proper abode for the Christian? It is the church. 
Okay, it is being children by the grace of God, and then they are in the church. And then within the church, we have different roles. I don't see really any evidence here that these teachers were called and then went astray. I think that these are men who have come in and who who have just merely taken on this teaching role with, without any call, ex- external or internal. You would see them like uh, the prophet saying, um, I did not call them, yet they ran. Uh, that, right. that kind of an idea. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Um, and either way, it, it's them, you know, because that's the or that's the that's what we have here uh, is that these men are grasping after something that was not theirs. Yes. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I agree. And, yeah, yeah, and that's what the angels were doing too. So and so the the parallel then being the angels grasped for something that wasn't theirs, just like these teachers did, and therefore because the angels are suffering this judgment for for that rebellion, so also these false teachers will also. Uh, fall under judgment. Yes, and 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 their followers too, just as just as the the demons are the followers of Satan, and and you're going to see this in verses eight and nine, where the teachers reject authority, and then in verse eight, and then in verse nine, uh, you have the example of Michael contending for the body of Moses and saying, "The Lord rebuke you." You're going to mm-hmm. have that. You know, you got this parallelism going on here, but we're yes. not there yet. We've got more verses <laughs> yet. So. Uh, do you, anything more to say about the uh, the angels here? Um, we want to be careful uh, when we talk about uh, angels and demons because the scripture does not have too much of the specifics of like the hierarchy of angels or really the history of of angels and demons. Yeah, and and really the references to angels are quite sparse too. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that the Bible tells us. Uh, bits and pieces there. I mean, you kind of get pictures of angels like with Isaiah, right, uh, right. the cherubim, you know, that sort of thing. And the seraphim and the living creatures. And you do get these glimpses every now and then, but that's all. They just kind of appear and then they disappear again. Yeah. And we're not really told much about right. it. And so a little bit of an admonition uh, to the audience simply because uh, there there is a lot of talk, even among Christians, about spiritual warfare, which is a real thing. Or about, but it's sometimes it's sort of like fan fiction, you know, the, the, these these invisible wars that go on, and we just need to be a little bit careful and a little bit cautious with the material that we take in, and not really going beyond what's been uh, revealed about this stuff. Yes, and to just and just proceed you know, with a little bit of caution and a little bit of wisdom there. Yes, and and to, and to not take it too lightly either. Yep, I agree. Do we want to move on to verse? Oh yeah, seven? moving on, moving on. Verse seven, and as Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cities around them in a similar manner, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, here's really where we've got to kind of go back and talk about the lewdness mentioned, the licentiousness mentioned, the sensuality mentioned um, in verse uh, verse um, 4, because uh, th- these are all kind of related. But first, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19. Yep. And you have you have the account in uh, Genesis 19 that Lot, um, after, well, this is a little bit before, but after he had taken, was it the right hand or the left hand, Willie? And now I can't remember. Anyway, he goes one direction. Abraham goes the other direction. Lot is the one who chooses to settle in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because yeah. uh, he says it looked really nice. I, he liked living there. He wanted to live there. And so he ends up going there. And while he's sojourning among them, the the Lord comes down and decides to destroy the city because of their sins. Uh, And that's what you get in 
Janus, the the account that God overthrows the cities uh, because of their great sin before right. the Lord. And uh, the right hand, left hand is uh, Genesis thirteen, by the way, in case anyone's following along. And um, and then this the sin in particular, actually, I mean, we have to be very blunt about it. Was well, what we call sodomy for very good reason. Um, you can you can look to passages like what is it is Ezekiel. What is it? Ezekiel 16, mm-hmm. where Ezekiel says that, you know, they were they were doing things. They were basically being inhospitable. But then Ezekiel also says that they had done a great abomination before me. Right, right. It's Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50. Uh, and it's behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Yes. And so Ezekiel's point was, is that, um, well, kind of like Paul gets at a little bit in Romans, that you don't just start out, men really don't just start out in these really deep depravities. They they kind of build up to it in a way so that eventually you get to this unnatural desire, this going after strange flesh, which is what I think your translation said. Is that right? Right. Right. Um, as kind of the the end of a long string of uh, of sins, kind of like the the capstone on 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 top of it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there there is a gradual hardening. It doesn't just come upon you at at once. And again, back to the leaven metaphor: a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and more and more and more, and then you just find yourself um, really in dire straits. And that's really the case in nearly any sin. It just sort of multiplies. And, and so it, then you, and then it you builds your, up, yeah, yeah, it builds up, and so you find yourself like Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the cities around them, having given themselves over to sexual immorality. And so mine says strange flesh. What is? What have you got? It's it's kind of I don't know. It's almost a little bit of a cop out. Unnatural desire. Well, <laughs> you know that's it's the same thing. It's, it's the, the same, same thing. It's the same it idea. Doesn't, yeah. it doesn't sound as we'll catchy. Get, as we'll, we'll get on the same page with uh, with this one day, but uh, yeah. <laughs> So, so, yeah, and so strange flesh or, you know, impure desire, uh, it's, uh, it, it is talking about um, unnatural unions, uh, immorality, and homosexuality. There's no honest exegetical way to really get around this. And the reason why we bring up the hospitality thing is that's often how it's portrayed in this day and age is, uh, well, they just weren't being nice. Well, that it's true, um, but when you try to sexually assault uh, your, uh, you know, the people who visit your town that is inhospitable, but, <laughs> rather inhospitable, <laughs> right? The little rude in most uh, countries, <laughs> and so yeah, and yeah, check out Fromers, and they'll tell you it's really not recommended. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, what we're saying here is it is that you've got to deal with these difficulties, uh, and it's not even a difficulty; it's only a difficulty because we are. Uh, as a culture, really shying away from these texts and from these issues. So then what does this mean for the text? What does this mean for the Christian then? Again, Jude says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved, and then he goes through all these things he wants to remind them of, but immediately before that, he talks about the teachers who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So these these verses are all tied together. 
And you know, that's one of the, the tricky things with this kind of radio exegesis is we'll mention we've only gone through uh, you know, six, seven verses here, and then we'll have 20, 25 minutes of dialogue and just a couple of them. But this is all one thought. And so they're immediately hearing this. These are turning uh, they're turning the grace of God into sensuality. And they're like the the people, the unbelievers in Egypt, or they're like the angels who followed the devil and rebelled, or they're like the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah who committed these horrible acts of depravity. And so it's all one big thought. And so as you're hearing it aloud, just being read straight through, you really get that. You really get that sense. And and so what does this lewdness then look like? And it's worth a discussion. And and, and you have this admonition, and it must have really been uh, an issue in the New Testament era, and it's probably an issue today where people receive the grace of God and they know that salvation comes from Jesus Christ, and then certain men want to turn it into a license, a license to sin. Yes. So that they, what they end up doing is, is they hear what it is that Jesus is doing for them, and they ultimately say then, like Paul would say, let us sin so that grace may abound. Uh, this belief that because I'm saved, it ultimately doesn't matter how I live. And that's kind of what Jude is speaking against here. Uh, with these proto-Gnostics, too, they probably would have believed that the material world was nothing. Right. And so it doesn't really ultimately matter what you do in the flesh because it's really nothing. Yeah, so just enjoy enjoy it while you got it because it's of no consequence. Yep, so it's not really going to affect anything. It's a, The great Gnostic heresy, or part of the great heresy, is that denial of the physical, or at least the denial of the importance of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we as Christians stress the incarnation so much that humanity is not uh, just a soul or just a spirit, but humanity is flesh as well. It's an essential part of humanity. And that our bodies are a gift of God, you know, and, and, and they are made by God. And so we need to treat our bodies with respect. Uh, when we talk about living a chaste life, we're talking about the body. A chaste and pure life primarily does deal with the body. Does sin begin internally, spiritually? Yeah, sure, but it takes root in the flesh. We don't want to be Gnostics. We don't want to say that it doesn't matter what I do in this body, that I can abuse my body uh, and use it in ways that God has not uh, deemed fit. And it doesn't, and this extends, you know, we don't have to get into detail, but it does extend beyond uh, sexual ethic. I mean, it extends into, into other other areas too, but that is very a very gnostic and you know in some aspects of Greek thought too uh, that this sort of plays out. But the incarnation is important because it's essential to humanity. I think it's worth actually talking a little bit about how this. I mean, we're going to get into it more as we go through Jude, but I think it's worth talking about that the way this plays out is. I mean, the the grossest example is sexual immorality. This idea that um, because the body doesn't matter, because it doesn't matter what I do, I could even indulge in things like sleeping around or I could indulge in things like pornography or, you know, watching things that are very explicit and saying, well, it ultimately doesn't matter because in our own context, we might say, well, it's just a movie, right? And that's, I mean, maybe that sounds a little bit, I don't know. Prudish. <laughs> uh, prudish. But at the same time, are we taking it seriously? Because a little leaven does really leaven the whole lump. And if we're if we're deadening ourselves uh, to these things around us, 
maybe there will come a time when we start to uh, be, we start flirting with the idea or actually seriously tempted by taking it just one step further. Right. And, and that's the thing. Uh, there is Christian liberty, but that liberty is so often used as an excuse to justify whatever, whatever we want. And it's, and discernment in, in a lot of these things isn't necessarily easy for the Christian. And it extends in, again into all, all different manner of behavior. Sometimes it's an easy decision. A Christian obviously shouldn't do this. And then in the other time, it's like, well, if I do this, maybe I can handle it, but I might be causing my brother to stumble. You know, it, it, there's so many different variables here. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's such a difficult thing. But like you say, yeah, it sounds rather prudish to say, yeah, maybe maybe I don't turn on this uh, certain premium cable show or whatever. Or maybe I don't go to this certain uh, uh, place uh, for the sake of my own spirituality, for the sake of my own soul, for the sake of my own chastity, and maybe for the sake of my brothers and sisters, too, or the people around me. Again, the Christian life is is difficult. And, and discipline, disciplining the body is difficult. But there is this uh, this little detail here uh, that we're kind of overlooking. Gone after um, strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. God does not wink at the actions of Sodom and Gomorrah, the unbelieving Israelites or the unbelieving Hebrews, or the rebellious angels. He takes this very seriously. Zelman, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> Well, they were <laughs> overthrown with uh, brimstone and fire. I mean, that's kind of where the image yeah. comes from. And so the, the cities were burned up and literally turned into a cesspit, more or less, so that where it used to be all, you know, glush and like the Garden of Eden is how it's described. Now it's just dead and continues to be dead um, so that it serves as a, a lasting judgment for that reason. And it's, again, it's an extremely difficult thing for us to fathom uh, when we simply talk about, you know, God as either disconnected, as we talked about earlier, or God as um, somehow not concerned uh, with holiness or with his own character, his own essential character. Then it becomes really difficult for us to fathom this. Well, how could God do that? And typically what we say is, oh, that's that's the Old Testament, and God, you know, he woke up on the wrong side of the bed in the Old Testament, but now we're in the New Testament, and it's going to be different. But fast forward to the end. We're in Jude. We flip over to Revelation, and we do have this picture of the final judgment, and that's what's in mind here. Uh, Jude is telling them uh, that these people are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. It's a warning. Don't end up like these people. Don't act like these people or your fate is going to be similar to these people. And again, it's not salvation by works. You know, we always have to have that disclaimer, but these are very real warnings specifically to false teachers um, and and specifically to Christians. There is a soul-destroying effect to sin. I'm not convinced that legalism, or excuse me, that, that, uh, you know, following the law of God is necessarily going to lead to despair. Uh, For some people it does, and it can all lead to discouragement because we all fail. But as long as we know that salvation is of Christ and that there is grace, there is still hope there. Mm-hmm. But sin, the opposite side of this, a life of lasciviousness is much more deceptive because it you're being destroyed. You're essentially, essentially rotting from the inside out and you don't know it. You become more and more hardened and you don't see what's going on around you. 
you you wonder if the citizens of Sodom, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, even saw the fire and brimstone coming down, if they even had time to run, if they even looked up that high, because such is their hardness of heart. Or were the Israelites and their murmuring, you know, are they surprised uh, when judgment comes upon them? Are the angels so hardened when they rebel that they're surprised that they're bound in chains uh, waiting for the lake of fire? Um, we're, we're told very specifically that the sons-in-law of Lot uh, think that he's joking. Right, that, um, right. That uh, they say, you're just crazy. God's, I mean, why would you even say such a thing? And yet uh, the judgment overtook them. Yeah. And it's, it's, such a, it's such a frightening aspect. It's such a frightening prospect, rather. This this idea of being so hardened that you have no idea what you're doing. You see it in Pharaoh. Pharaoh sees these miracles, and it's weird to think of the plagues as miracles, but it is what it is. Uh, but he sees, you know, they are, yeah. yeah. And he sees all these things, sees the power of God, and then still says, "Nope, nope, not going to let this happen." And that's that's the real dire warning here. And Jude knows this. Jude knows the real danger of letting this of letting this creep in. And so he's going to encourage them, um, and we're running out of time here. This is actually going to be a two-part episode, our first two-part. Yeah, at least. At least. We'll see where we go. <laughs> but there is encouragement here because he's going to warn them about the false teachers. He's going to teach them how to resist them, and finally he's going to end you know, with the doxology, uh, blessing God. And so there is tremendous encouragement here because uh, we're ending – you know, you end, you end a broadcast on Sodom and Gomorrah, you kind of have to – you know, you kind of have to have some encouragement at the end, but there, but there is encouragement here that in the church of Christ, there is forgiveness. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. And more than that, there is complete salvation because God does not leave you alone. He gives you brothers and sisters and faithful teachers. He gives you his means of grace. He gives you continual forgiveness of sins, continual pardon, and these gifts which strengthen your faith and build you up and protect you and guard you. It doesn't mean life's going to be perfect. Life is going to be difficult. But in the midst of it all, you know God's promises are true, and God strengthens you throughout the entire journey. Yep. Amen. And and to refer back a little bit to Jude 1, uh, that you are called in Christ, that you are beloved in God the Father, and you're kept for Jesus Christ. You're kept in him. And so the Christian also has that comfort, knowing your salvation is of God. And even if we have to remind ourselves of the seriousness of sin, we can also remember the seriousness of God in sending his son to be our savior. And the surety of his promises which do not fail. This is Word Fitly Spoken. Check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. God love you and God bless.